want you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be spending the majority of our time there in Matthew 21. Today is Palm Sunday, the first day of what has become known as Passion Week. During this time, every year, we gather together to celebrate Jesus, the Son of God, and worship Him as our Savior and Lord. We acknowledge His amazing love for us that led Him to give Himself for us, dying in our place, willingly enduring the punishment that was due to us for our sins. He died to set us free from the penalty of sin, which is death, and from the power of sin, which is bondage. And he demonstrated that he had conquered sin and death by rising from the dead, which we will celebrate next Sunday in our Easter service. Today, we're going to focus not only on the sacrifice of Jesus, but on the fact that he is our king. So today, we will look at the prophecy of a coming king, the presentation of Jesus as that king, the passion of the king, and the prophecy of the second coming of the king. Now let me remind you the setting for what takes place during Passion Week. It is the celebration of Passover in in the days prior to Passover, Jews would arrive in Jerusalem from all over Israel and from other areas of the Roman Empire as well. The normal population of Jerusalem of about 200,000 would grow to between 1 and 2 million during Passover. This year, many had come to Jerusalem expecting that finally their long-awaited Messiah had come. Every year when they celebrated Passover, every single year, they would exclaim, next year with Messiah in Jerusalem. If the Messiah didn't show up that year, they would expect him the next year. If he didn't show up that year, they would expect him the next year. If they didn't show up that year, they'd expect him the next year. But something was different this year. This year, they had heard about a rabbi named Yeshua. We know him as Jesus who had performed countless miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead publicly just a few weeks prior to Passover. Could he be the promised king? Could he be the one who had been promised by God? Thousands thought so. Now, the promise of a Messiah had been prophesied for hundreds of years. Multiple prophecies 
A thousand years prior to this, God had given a promise to David, who was king of Israel, through Samuel. Samuel came to David, and God spoke through him, and we read that in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14. God speaking here, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God had promised David that his offspring, one of his descendants, God would raise to the throne of David, and his kingdom would last forever. That had not yet been fulfilled. But wait, there's more. 400 years later, God would move upon Isaiah to prophesy of the coming king. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Note that. A son given, the only begotten son. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's quite the son that he's going to be called Mighty God. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah was given this as a prophecy that a child is going to be born. A son is going to be given. And we know that this son is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, given by the Father to be that king who will rule over his kingdom forever. And then God would use the prophet Zechariah to foretell how this promised king would one day enter into Jerusalem. And it's not exactly how one might think a king would enter. Not on a mighty steed, not on a chariot, not clothed in armor and wielding a sword. Listen to what Zechariah writes. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What? What kind of king is that? The king is going to enter Jerusalem on a foal of a donkey? Yes, indeed, because he is not the kind of king that the people were expecting. 
Instead, he was a king who has salvation, who is humble, who has humbled himself in a greater way than any man ever humbled himself. As we will see in our text for today, Jesus will fulfill this very prophecy and many others as he presents himself to the people as their promised king. Make no mistake of it, Jesus knew he was the promised king and he let the people know he was the promised king in his presentation. He presents himself as the king who has arrived. Look at our text with me. In fact, if you can, why don't you stand with me for the reading of the text? I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. All four gospel, all four gospels give an account of the triumphal entry of that first Palm Sunday. In John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus and his disciples arrived two days earlier at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, which is about four miles outside of Jerusalem. He also tells us that a large crowd of Jews came to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They wanted to see this man with their own two eyes, this man who had been in the tomb for four days before Jesus had raised him from the dead. Jesus and his disciples spent the Sabbath there, and then early on the first day of the new week, they left for Jerusalem, along with the crowds of people, all on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and possibly to see their promised Messiah and King. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to publicly declare himself to be that promised 
Messiah and King. So he instructs his disciples where to go, what to do, and what to say to secure the young colt of a donkey for Jesus to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just as Zechariah had prophesied. Now, it's not in our text, but in Luke and in Mark, we learn that the disciples went there, they saw the donkey and the colt, they untie them, and the owner says, what are you doing? And they said, oh, the Lord has need of these. And the owner says, oh, okay, go ahead and take them. You know, if you went out this morning to get in your car and there was somebody else getting into your car, and you said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, the Lord has need of your car. Would you say, oh, okay, go ahead, take it? Probably not. But here we see that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is in control. He knew exactly what was happening. This was all a part of God's divine plan. Jesus wanted to declare that he was the king. And to do that, he he needed to fulfill this prophecy that was given hundreds of years beforehand. And so that is exactly what he did. And guess what? The crowds reacted just as Jesus knew that they would. They understood he was publicly presenting himself as the promised king. And they responded with the appropriate gestures, praise, and worship that was due for their king. His disciples, think about this. His disciples must have been thrilled. Finally, Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Messiah, as the king. Finally declaring himself. As I said, all four of the Gospels record this glorious event that occurred on that first Palm Sunday. But not only in the triumphal entry did Jesus declare himself to be king. Matthew goes on to tell us that the next day Jesus entered the temple, the temple mount, And he drove out all of the merchants in the temple. Look at verse 12 with me. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. This was another fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus used to present himself as the promised Messiah, as the promised king. The prophet Malachi had prophesied 500 years before this day that the coming Messiah would purify the temple from its corruption. And this prophecy, Jesus fulfilled. It also 
publicly demonstrated his power and his authority. Anyone can claim to be king. Do you have the power of a king? Do you have the authority of a king? Now, you have to understand this. The temple complex is immense. A couple of us have been on the Temple Mount. I was blown away by how big it is. 37 acres. The Temple Mount, 37 acres. It's been estimated that over 1 million worshipers could fit on the Temple Mount at one time. Unless the space was taken up by merchants. The largest area of the Temple Mount was the Court of Gentiles. So the, the temple is relatively small. And then it's surrounded by concentric courts that get bigger as you go out. And the largest was the Court of Gentiles. Anyone could enter into that area of the temple. They did not have to be Jews. The Jews could only enter into the next area. But anyone could enter into that larger area, the court of the Gentiles. But that area had been largely taken over by vendors and was being used as a religious marketplace, operated under the control of the high priest. Merchants would pay for the rights to set up their concessions for the selling of wine, oil, and animals for sacrifices, or exchanging money into the proper currency for the temple tax and offering. So, the outer court of the temple had become a bazaar for making money and profit off of those who came to worship. You couldn't get to the inner courts without going through the outer court first. Jesus saw this, and he was filled with zeal for his Father's house. And so Jesus took it upon himself to drive out the merchants and the money changers, and note this, no one could stop him. No one could stand in his way. Now, make no mistake, there were priests, there were scribes, there was temple police on that temple mount, but no one could stand in the way of the king. In his actions, he was publicly declaring his divine authority over the temple and over the people. He was declaring, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the one who fulfills all prophecy. And nothing can stop him from doing so. Imagine the scene. There's tens of thousands of worshipers present. Perhaps hundreds of merchants. Their tables being overturned. Their coins going everywhere. Lambs and goats being set free. Doves flying away. 
and no one could stop him. No one could stand up to his power and authority. And we realize this is just a foretaste of what's to come, folks. Just a foretaste of the power and authority that he will demonstrate in the last day. But Jesus doesn't stop there. After he's cleansed the temple mount, then he begins to minister to the worshipers. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Fearful of Jesus' wrath and unable to resist him, the merchants and money changers had fled. But those who were sick, those who came to the temple as beggars, the blind and the lame, though surely they must have been awed by Jesus demonstrating his power, they were not afraid of him. They saw his power and authority as evidence of him being sent by God. And so they came to him for healing. And he received them. And he healed them. How many, we do not know. Many were healed that day. Many had their sight restored. Many could walk again. Once again, Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority. Now, power and authority over sickness, over disease. But he was also demonstrating his great compassion and love. What kind of king is this? who cares so much about those who have so little. Remember, the blind, the deaf, the lame, they could not go any further than the court of Gentiles. They were not allowed to go closer to the temple because they were seen as those who had been afflicted by God, cursed by God, born with some kind of physical defect as being a sign of God's curse upon them. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Jesus, humble and lowly, welcomed them. Come to me, you who, are, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, our master said. And he healed them. He healed them. Jesus' compassion 
was a supreme credential of his divine kingship. Not only because of the power it demonstrated, but because of the gracious love that it demonstrated. Jesus cared. He cared for the sick. He cared for the outcast. He cared for the lost. Well, along with everyone else who was present and observed these wonderful things that Jesus was doing, the ungodly priests and scribes became indignant. Why? Because the children were praising Jesus. And the children were referring to him as the son of David. Well, guess what? That term indicates that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised descendant of David who would sit on David's throne as king forever. The children are acknowledging this. Now, many of those children had probably been with their families the day before as Jesus had triumphantly entered Jerusalem and heard the crowds exclaiming the same things. And now they're seeing Jesus in his compassion, in his love, in his power, in his healing miracles. And they are praising him. And these wicked priests and scribes are indignant. They wanted Jesus to stop the children from praising him. And instead, he defends them and basically says, it's right for them to do so. And it is. Amen? Every lip should praise him. Every person should praise him. And one day, they will. Well, throughout the rest of the Passion Week and the days leading up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, he would continue to present himself to the people as the promised Messiah and King. Make no mistake, he did this through performing miracles, through teaching with authority, and through confrontation with the ungodly priests and leaders of the Jews. And in so doing, he forced those priests and leaders to take action against himself, which was exactly what had been foreordained by God for our redemption. Amen? For the redemption of all of those chosen by the Father could only be accomplished through the substitutionary death of the Son, of the Messiah, of the King. Was this what the people were expecting? No. Is this what his disciples were expecting? No. Even though Jesus had told them over and over again. Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear. Isn't that the truth? But Jesus had come that he might die. You see, Jesus had come as the king promised by God 
and he would establish his kingdom upon the earth. But it would be a different type of kingdom than the Jewish people were expecting. It would not be a physical kingdom. It would be a spiritual kingdom. It would not be established by defeating physical armies. But it would be established by defeating spiritual forces of darkness. It would not be established through a, the military might of the king. But through the humility and death of the king. He would die as the true Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away our sins. Just as John the Baptist had prophesied. Make no mistake, Jesus would indeed establish his kingdom upon the earth. But it would be a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom of peace. Peace with God for all of its citizens through his sacrifice of himself it is through his passion through his death on the cross that we can be justified that we can have peace with God that we can become beloved citizens of his kingdom Jesus had to die to make that possible. Why? Because we're sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, of the perfection of God. All, without exception. And the penalty for sin is death. First physical death and then spiritual separation from God forever. There was no peace between man and God until Jesus, our King, died to make peace. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen? We did not have peace with God as sinners. And we would not have peace with God today as sinners. For God cannot look upon sin and certainly does not welcome it into his presence. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Through him we've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We are credited with the righteousness of Christ and we can now stand in the presence of God. We have access to God and he no longer looks at us as sinners but as those who have been made righteous Paul goes on to write in verses 6 through 8 these 
wonderful words, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Make no mistake, Jesus came to establish his kingdom a spiritual kingdom, and that kingdom is made up of each and every soul who puts their faith and trust in him for their salvation. Jesus is our king, but not by forcing us to submit to him. He became our king by dying to secure our salvation, by defeating sin and death on our behalf. And it is his great love and grace that draws us to him, that causes us to be born again, that welcomes us into his eternal kingdom. It is his love that compels us to come to him for our salvation. It is his grace that makes that possible. His passion was absolutely necessary. The king must die. He had to die and he had to be buried. But because he is the righteous son of God, because he was without his own sin, death could not hold him. So on the third day, he rose from the dead, once again demonstrating his power and his authority, this time over sin, over death, over all the forces of darkness. Not only did Jesus rise again from the grave, but he did so in a glorified human body in which he then ascended back into heaven and took his place on his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father from where he is ruling over his kingdom right now. Every day, every moment of every day. Brothers and sisters, we have a king. A righteous king. A loving king, a merciful king, a gracious king. He is seated on his throne. And in his absence, he has sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to dwell in all of his people. And to empower us to live as citizens of his kingdom. His Spirit empowers us to live lives of serving Him and glorifying Him. But wait, there's more. Not only is He ruling over His spiritual kingdom on earth, but one day He is also returning in power and in glory to defeat all remaining enemies and and to establish his kingdom of righteousness upon the entire earth. 
The king is coming. So once again, the people of God have been promised by God that your king, our king, Jesus, is coming. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. This will not be an in-depth study of Revelation. But I do want to have you see this promise of the return of our King. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Not a donkey this time, folks. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. He's been crowned with many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The next time he comes, he does not come for the purpose of salvation. He comes for the purpose of judgment. He does not come humbly mounted on a donkey. He comes in power and authority mounted on a great stallion. And he does not come alone. We will come with him. And note this, we come along as observers, not as warriors. He doesn't need our help, folks. And then turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
when I was in Jerusalem, I remember coming over the top of the Mount of Olives for the first time. We were retracing Jesus' steps from Bethany into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And I remember as we crested the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount came into view, I mean, tears in my eyes. And thinking to myself, how amazing to have been one of his disciples. Seeing him on that foal of a donkey with the crowds, thousands, thousands proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Waving the palm branches, laying their coats in front of him so that the donkey would not step on the earth. Rolling out the red carpet, if you will. How incredible that must have been to be a disciple of Jesus and to have been with him as he entered Jerusalem with thousands proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It would have been incredible. Amen? How much more glorious will it be for us to descend with him from heaven when he comes in power and glory, when he defeats all enemies and he establishes his glorious kingdom on the new earth and we will be with him. And we shall be like him. How glorious. So I want you to think about that this Palm Sunday. Not just about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was amazing. But his triumphal entry that is yet to come. And you can be a part of that if you put your faith and trust in him if you call upon Him to be your Savior and Lord. I pray that you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity for us to be reminded of something that occurred over 2,000 years ago. But Father God, we are living it still today. We are here today, Father, because Your Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, laid down His life for us so that we might become citizens of His kingdom. Through the gift of saving faith, He has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. And we sing of that. We sing His praises and we look forward to that day when all will be made new, when we will enter into the new heaven and new earth in our glorified human bodies 
and we shall dwell with you forever and ever and ever in righteousness, in peace, in love. Until that day, Father God, give us the faith to trust in you and give us the power and encouragement to live for you, to worship you, and to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.